0: I hope that is the theme of your life. It should be. And we see traces of that as we continue in David's life. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 26. But if you noticed last week as we ended up, this really wonderful story of the meeting of Abigail and David, I believe it's... The most reported, the longest reported conversation of any uh, woman to David throughout all of scripture pointing to the fact that she had wise things to say and the Bible highlights those. When a person of wisdom speaks, the Bible notes that and it certainly was of help to David in the midst of facing down a fool and almost falling into (laughs) foolishness himself. We won't go back into all that because we covered that last week. But again, I wanted to finish up uh, as as we finished that, just, just an observation. Um, because we didn't finish with the chapter yet. And some of you may have noticed that. And I did that on purpose. We're going to finish the chapter. We had another verse there. But I still wanted us to take note of the attitude of, of David and Abigail toward each other. Because I think it's of note. David actually telling Abigail... That um, he had, in the words that some translations use, are had obeyed her request. A future king, actually saying to this wise woman, "I have done. I have submitted myself to what you want me to do." Now, that's not anyway um, addressing gender roles and things like that. Obviously, the Bible is clear on those things, and we don't need to get all that tonight. But it was that David recognized God's wisdom in this woman, and he was submitting to um, God's wisdom that was coming from a woman that would, before either one of them knew, very soon be would be his wife. And, of course, her humility at the end, treating herself. I mean, she's the wealthy woman. And when she marries David, David has access to all of that. And yet in the end, she says, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Whatever you want me to do, David, I'll do. Uh, When we have that kind of humility towards each other as believers, as church members, as friends, as husbands and wives together, when we have that kind of humility towards each other, that lack of pride, God can use that in a mighty way. And I still, as I think back on this, I think even though David Abigail wasn't David's wife yet, I think there's some application here for married couples as well. And that is, men remember one of the um, one of the great sources of God's wisdom that He uses from an individual standpoint for those of us that are married are our wives. God has given to them, them to us as our helpmeet, right? Help me to help us and we behoove ourselves to take time to really listen to them listen to their concerns act on those if it was good for david to do when god is talking to us through our wives and they're giving us wisdom from his word don't be in a hurry to discount that be in a habit of listening and and paying attention and i think that's that's so important honor our spouses in that way they're they're one they're the greatest gift that god has given to us outside of jesus christ so have that relationship with them well we mentioned that the whole uh, thing about abigail and david getting married probably best to consider this under the aspect of the Read of the kinsman redeemer expectation within, within uh, Israeli culture that David did this because he was a relative and she had lost her husband, and therefore he felt it was his job to marry her and provide for her because she was a probably a very distant relative. And so maybe that makes more sense why David just didn't hurry into this and say, Oh, I'd, I'd like to have another wife, so let's just add her on. Um, I think this was a calculated thing. I think he was looking at this as his answer to the responsibility that God had placed upon him in the culture. But then we get to verse 43. And a little more awkward, right? David also took a Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was in Gilead. The way this is worded. David might have already had a taken as his wife uh, probably there's there's a good possibility here that David is already following what would have been the norm in these cultures that as as you were expected, a future king that he would have multiple wives many times that was so um, that there would be peace between a king and other nations if you marry a king's daughter from another nation then you're pretty much guaranteed peace with that nation and it was kind of like a practical political thing uh David seems to be getting a start a little too early on that and notice I said it's a practical political thing but it was never what God intended so when we see this God is not saying anything necessarily or commenting on whether David is right or wrong here but he's not putting his stamp of approval on this and if David is doing this this is probably an area where he's kind of blinded where he hasn't sought the Lord's certainly the Lord's direction on this but there is one more possibility here I kind of come down on this I think there's a good possibility here we have this very really cruel thing in verse 44 King Saul you see his spite and he has just told David David I'm not going to pursue you anymore well in this next chapter we're going to see that he, he was lying; that he wasn't being honest at all. But it almost seems like, in order to get revenge on Michal for helping David, he takes his own daughter. Little affection for his own daughter, if she dared come between him and his vengeance upon David. It does seem in this picture that she for, that he forced her into a divorce and remarriage with another man. That's how low this sinful king will go because hatred and vengeance, even after he's told David, I'm not going to pursue you anymore. And remember, in in almost in tears, he repented, so to speak, but it really wasn't heartfelt. Again, we have this picture of Saul saying a lot of things, but in the end, it just seems like it doesn't really come from the heart. He's just saying things that will help him at the time another reminder to me to always be careful when I say something to make sure that it's truly from the heart that I'm just not trying to get some sort of gain out of saying certain words but that I really truly mean them Um, Saul here is in his cruelty seems like he forces Michal there's a small possibility she was upset with David and she asked her dad if she could remarry probably not David had probably heard of this at this point and said well I don't have a wife now. So he met a Hinoam. He said, well, I guess we can get married. And then this thing with Abigail comes up. And in Israeli law, in God's law, a person who was married, I know this sounds strange to us today, but a person who was married still seems to be allowed to be a kinsman redeemer and help out someone like Abigail in her situation. So there is a possibility that David has not done anything wrong here, that he's trying to follow responsibility the way God has, has following God's expectations. uh, We don't know for sure. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but all this is important because after that cruel act of Saul, literally taking a man's wife from him and giving her to someone else, his own daughter, it's obvious that he's not done pursuing David. So we get to, chapter 26 verse 1 then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying is not David hiding himself on the hill of Echolai which is on the east of Jeshimon does this sound familiar these same people these were the same people that betrayed David earlier same group of people when um Saul came after David earlier, and Saul had almost succeeded in capturing David, and all of a sudden that Philistine flare-up came up, and they had to go. These guys really didn't like David for some reason. Maybe it was because, I just thought about this, maybe they were a little jealous, they found out about his now marriage with Abigail, they know that he's wealthy and rich, and he lives nearby, and maybe they're, they just have animus and jealousy against David, who knows? But they let King Saul know... That David is in their territory again. David again dealing with the betrayal of his own people as a regular thing in his life. So King Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel. Taking the resources of Israel that were meant to fight his enemies. And he's fighting David. He's pursuing David to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. Saul gains the high ground. He has the advantage at this point. Is David in trouble? No, we're going to find out that God is going to take this advantage from Saul very soon. And David, who has his own spy network, Saul is not the only one that can do this. It says, when he saw that Saul had come after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. He heard rumors, he sends out his spy network, he knows right where Saul is, verse 5, then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. He's able to find out right where Saul is, Saul's on a hill, so it's very obvious where the king is, and David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Nair, that's Saul's relative, that's his um, general, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. God is giving David a test here. David, and and notice now that David is now taking the initiative for the first time to go to where Saul is. He's not being portrayed any longer as one that's helplessly running away from his pursuer. David, in a number of these instances, and this will continue to happen, now has the confidence and has the power of God with him that he's taking the initiative and he's going to take the battle to Saul himself. Well, he's not going to actually battle them. We'll see that next. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah Who will go do- <clears throat> who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? See, Kendall, can you get me a bottle of water? Appreciate that. Um, so two men with him. Perhaps these men functioned as his bodyguards. One was his nephew his his general is joab or would be his general soon um, and this this man seems to be his nephew abishai the other man just one interesting note of him notice that he's a foreigner a the hittite and notice just this is a side note um, just because god in a general sense has given David and other leaders throughout Israel's history the responsibility of pursuing and wiping out the heathen nations. This is just another example, like Ruth, that God would allow foreigners to join with the Israelites and become as one of them, kind of like a proselyte, a Jewish proselyte, an Israeli proselyte. And this was a man who was a foreigner, was a Hittite, and um, God had allowed him to be one of God's people. And, and change allegiance there. So always keep that balance of God's mercy. There was always room for these foreigners who um, submitted themselves to God to become a part of, of God's people. And we see that with Ahimelech. Well, Abishai immediately pipes up and says, oh, I will go down with you. He enthusiastically says, oh, David, pick me, pick me. And David says, okay, let's go. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Here Saul thought he had the high ground. And God says, nope, I'm going to turn this all upside down and give David, I'm going to give David the chance here to wipe you out and to give him another test. And so his nephew Abishai, again, just like in the cave with David's men, he is excited. And he's enthusiastic. Verse eight. Then Abishai said to David, "God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, notice his enthusiasm here. Let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice." Can you imagine Abishai here is like, "Oh, David, another opportunity. I know the last time you kind maybe in it. Obviously, his men still didn't fully get." Um, the Torah, the, God's law's expectations for those he had put into power. Maybe Abishai is thinking, David, I, I know you passed up that last opportunity, cutting off Saul's part of his garment, didn't quite get that. But David, this is so obvious. I mean, here he is right here in his general, and the whole army. Just it reminds me, I can't remember right now, of the old comedy routine. But there was one guy in particular who was constantly like, let me at him, let me at him. And that was kind of what Abishai is doing here. Just let me at him, David. And I promise you, I won't miss. And this was no, um, this was no baseless uh, boast by any means. This man obviously had the ability, the assassin's ability to, when he threw a spear, when he assassinated someone, he was known for getting it done right. And he says, David, you know, you know, I can do this. I just, I'll just take him out. You won't have any guilt, and we won't have to be renegades anymore on the run. This is God doing this, David. What does David say? David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David will have none of it. And maybe he's a little, maybe he sighs with a little weariness, but you think about this. Hasn't God taught him? over these many recent events about acting out on his own passion rather than God's timing. I mean, he's had so many lessons in this. The last time he had uh, Saul in his grasp, so to speak, and this whole thing with Nabal and and how he almost made a very foolish error and destroyed a household of people. And David says, no way, (laughs) Abishag, don't even tempt me in this. Remember God's law. I'm not going to do this. Verse 10 is interesting. And David said, as the Lord lives, he gives an oath here. The Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. It's David saying here. He's saying, Abishag, there are a variety of creative ways that the Lord can use to end Saul's life. But my disobedience is not one of those ways. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to disobey my God. And folks, we may have opportunities in our lives, maybe to deal with someone that's really been bothering us. Maybe uh, you just think of all kinds of different opportunities that that come up into our lives. And you may be able to come up with, with practical reasons why you should do this or why you should react to someone in a particular way. But if you, you're you thinking about this, and yet scripture comes to mind where it's clear, don't do it. It doesn't matter how many opportunities are before you. If it in any way involves disobeying God's word, don't do it. David makes that clear here. No, don't do it. God can handle this. I know. I've been guilty a number of times myself, David says here, and I'm not going to do this. I've learned my lesson. But I will do something. And so verse 12, David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it or heard any awake, for they were all asleep, not because they were really tired from the journey, but because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. God's in control over all of this, and he gives David the opportunity to end this as a test, and David passes the test 100%. A plus plus for David. Okay, so let me just throw this out here then. Why the spear and the jar of water? Anybody ever think about that? Thankfully, it wasn't, wasn't the robe because remember, we had that, that had consequences where it was, it was a sign of David actually trying to take Saul's authority. But when he takes the spear and the jar of the water this time, there's, he doesn't feel any guilt afterwards. Any idea why David would do this? Is he rendering Saul helpless because he doesn't have a way to protect himself or a way to nourish himself? Oh, very good. I like the way you said you used the word protection and nourish. It's not that Saul didn't have other men around him that couldn't help him. But that spear is the sign of the king's power. That's his weapon. David takes the sign of his power away from him. And the sign that also that thing that of water uh, whatever it is that jug of water is a symbol of his resources and david takes both of those away to make a point that i was in a position to take away everything from you and he's going to make his point very effectively next and god of course is in control and involved in all of this don't miss this as we continue because uh, this event along with the last time that David had opportunity to kill Saul there's so much wisdom here in the way that David responds and it really does help us when we are involved with difficult people to remember and know how to respond to those people so good here verse 13 David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them he wanted to make sure there was some distance being careful and David called to the army and he specifically called to the general, the captain, or excuse me, the general Abner, the son of Nair, saying, will you not answer, Abner? Of course, the middle of the night, God obviously allowed them to wake up from their sleep. And the general Abner answers, and probably in surprise, and who are you who calls to the king? <laughs> he, he wakes up and says, what right do you have to try to wake up the king at this late at night, whoever you are? Show yourself is basically what he's saying here. Well, Abner is about ready to get a a taste of humble pie here real quick. And David said to Abner, are you not a man? Starts right out questioning his very manhood, you know. Um, And there's a purpose for this. He's not just, as we say in our culture today, talking trash because he has the opportunity to criticize someone else. He's making a point here. And he's being very pointed. He's making a point. Um, Are you not a man? Prove you're a man. I'm about ready to prove, actually, David says, that you're not the man that you're supposed to be. And he said, who is like you in Israel? What does he mean by that? He's saying, Abner, you have a unique responsibility and position in front of all of Israel. What was that position? Anybody think of that off the top of your head? What was his main purpose and position, his main responsibility? To what? Defender of the king. And, and so David points this out. He says, what is, who is like you? What's your responsibility? Uh, the answer is, he's the one that's supposed to protect the king. So David says, why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? Why aren't you doing your job, Abner? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. The one most important job you had to do as a general, Abner, and you totally failed at it. Now, how's that for a response to someone? Somebody says, you know, who are you to talk to the king? Well, I'm the guy that's about ready to point out, Abner, that you didn't do your job. And by the way, if you're a general at this time, especially at this time, probably not not so much today, but if you didn't fulfill your most important responsibility, certainly protecting the king, you could certainly lose your job and lose your life. And David's really pointing that out. He'll point that out next, that Abner's very life is at stake because he's done a poor job of keeping over the king. And I kind of wonder at the same time, we were not told this, but I kind of wonder as Saul's listening, if David isn't also pointing to the fact, he's saying something along the lines of, You chased me away, and I could have been the one protecting you and helping you, and yet you chased away the very person, you pushed away the very person who could have done the best job of protecting you, King Saul. Kind of wonder if there's a little bit of that. And now he points to the the obvious question would be, well, prove it, whoever you are. And he says, and now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. And he presents the jar of water, the spear, and now everybody, including Abner. Abner knows that he's in big trouble. He could lose his life. And King Saul realizes now a second time that David has had mercy on him. And you can just imagine his weakened emotional state here in verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, and I can imagine him trembling as he says this, is this your voice, David, my son? I wonder if David was kind of hurt or irritated by the fact that Saul normally would call refer to him as the son of Jesse because he was so angry with him. And yet now that he's found out that David's given him mercy. Now it's like, Oh, you're, you're my son again. It's hard living with difficult people that manipulate the people that they love the most by not being clear where they stand with that person. If you've ever known a difficult person or had a difficult person in your family that loves to manipulate, one of the ways they do that is by not letting their loved ones know where they really stand with them, how much they really care. Sometimes they'll act like they really love them. Other times they act like they don't want them to be around at all. And I'm sure it was frustrating for David, but David has wisened up and he knows not to trust whatever Saul's going to say, "And even if Saul refers to him as his son, it's not going to move David from what he wants to say next." And David said, "It is my voice, my Lord, O king." Again, his submission, his recognition, maybe he's also reminding Abigail or, or Abishag, Abishai. See, King Saul's still king. that's why we didn't kill him. And then David said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? Again, David's saying, I've done nothing wrong. That's what he says. For what have I done? What evil is in my hands? And you can really, David is much more controlled by the Lord at this point, but he's honest. And folks, we can express our frustration to people in a right way and still, and not in an angry way, not in a wrong way, but we can still in a right way work with people, but also express sometimes, I- I'm frustrated by your sin. I'm frustrated by what it's doing to our relationship. And you can hear that in David's explanation here. He says, why do you keep pursuing me? I'm innocent. I've done you no wrong. And now he offers up a prayer, verse 19. Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. I'm going to pray to the Lord, Saul, and I want you to hear what I'm going to say. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. What does David mean here? He is still, David is humble enough to say, you know what? There still might be in all of this some way that I've sinned against God. So, Lord, If I have in any way, if this is because of some sin that I have done, he says, may he accept an offering. He says, I will offer up a sin offering to you, Lord. In other words, Lord, I'll get it right. Lord, you show me in the midst of all this, if there's still a sin in which you're punishing me for, please let me know and I will repent and I will get right with you. And a beautiful thing about this, Is for those of us that tend to be extra sensitive, even when we've done things that are wrong and we've committed sin, David had committed no sin here, but he knows that if he has committed a sin, that he still, because of the relationship he has with his heavenly father, that he can go to his heavenly father and his father will hear him and offer him forgiveness and reestablish relationship with him. And we need to remember that too when we have sin in our lives. Don't start to think there's that God, God won't listen to me. God won't forgive me. No, God is always ready when we offer up a repentant heart and ask for forgiveness. He's always ready to forgive. David says, I know that he's ready to forgive. And if I have sin, I'll ask him forgiveness. But on the other hand, if it is men, and he's very general here, he's still holding out that Saul might be influenced by evil men against him, like the Ziphites, but he's general enough. He's including Saul in this. If it be men, whether it be influencers of King Saul or King Saul himself, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. David's tired He's basically saying here at the end, as he finishes his conversation with Saul, whoever it is um, who has made my life miserable, Lord, I give them over to you. And I ask that you will act and you will deal with them, Lord. And let's. This is almost this really kind of goes in line with what we call the imprecatory songs. You know what those are? Those are the Psalms where David calls judgment down upon his enemies. In our culture today, a lot of times, those don't get a lot of play because we're almost kind of embarrassed by them, And we we do have to provide explanation because David and his language in those imprecatory Psalms can get pretty ruthless, pretty extreme. But remember, he's also writing that under the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, too. But folks, there there are times still even today where we have moments where if people are doing evil against us or they're doing evil and it's reflecting on the name of God or, on, or if it's reflecting on the reputation of a good man. I have had times, I'll give you one example without giving any names. I knew of a faithful pastor who I had a lot of appreciation for and I knew of a situation where people in his congregation were rebelling against him. And saying things about him that I knew were not true and and marring his testimony in horrible ways. And I did pray one time. I didn't pray as forcefully as David does in some of the Psalms. But Lord, I I said, Lord, this is a faithful man. Please help him deal with these people. And the Lord did deal with them. And I heard some time later that even one of them uh, suffered a very serious illness for a while. I don't think that was specifically because of my prayer, but the point is there are times where we have evil against us and it's reflecting on the name of the Lord. And and, uh, these people are intent upon um, doing things that mar God's testimony or that want to hurt us. And it's okay to ask God, my point is, for help and to just say, Lord, just deal with these people. Please help me in this and David says that and but listen to the last part of this if you don't read this carefully you miss this why is it just because he's vengeful and he wants revenge no this is why he wants them dealt with to the point where he'd say may they be cursed before the Lord for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord saying go serve other gods do you realize what he's saying there he's saying because of my experience over these past weeks months, I have not had the privilege and the wonderful opportunity to worship with God's people. Here we have a theme of worship. So out of all the things that David has experienced, the one thing that bothers him the most, the share in the heritage of the Lord saying, go serve other gods. He's basically describing wanting to worship with God's people together and basically being forced out to the point where they're saying, no, you're not allowed to to worship with with our God anymore. You go find another false God to worship. And David says, not that he can't worship personally. We know David did that a lot. He would pray to God. This is separate. He's saying, I miss the corporate worship that I used to be able to enjoy with God's people. Folks, if it's that important to David in this situation, doesn't it emphasize what we've been talking about in worship, that it ought to be that important to us? If we have to miss a a Sunday of corporate worship or, or, or whatever, we even have to be with another church family other than our own, and those things happen, we ought to miss it. We ought to be like David and say, oh, I can't wait to get back. That's the one thing. I want to worship together with God's people. That's the one thing that David says, above all else, I miss the most. Wonderful testimony there. Now, therefore, verse 20, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And just quickly, we'll cover this more next week. But David Saul's response. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and made a great mistake. David's being careful here. He's not buying it. But he does say, David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. And then he reminds the truth of God. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I was committed to obeying God. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he be delivered at me out of all my tribulation. I don't even think here David was saying, because I have loving, wonderful feelings toward you, Saul. He's saying, because it's so important to me, Saul, to obey God. Therefore, to spare your life, that was important to me because obedience to God was so precious to me. Not because I'm not frustrated with you or tempted to take your life myself. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. And here this evil king becomes a prophet. He will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. And folks, that is the last time that they would talk to each other again. And for the rest of this book, we're going to see, it really comes to a climax with some very dramatic um, events that take place. And we'll see in the end, God will make it clear whose side he's on, who he's supporting, and who he has rejected. And by the end of the book, it'll be very clear for us. I think it's clear already. But we will find out that God will exalt and bless the man that is committed, that looks at obedience as something precious, that loves to obey God in the right time. God will lift up that person and deal with his enemies. So let that be a wonderful encouragement tonight, as well as a reminder to us to always be cautious in what we say. say use wise words, be honest. David rushed and moved toward the situation to make peace. We should want to do that in our conflict that we have with people. You be the one to initiate peace and ask God for words of wisdom to be able to do that. And let's ask him for words of wisdom as we pray tonight as well.